A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And welcome back to the Squiggly Careers podcast. It's Helen, and I wanted to tell you about what you can expect on this episode. So it's another one in our series of episodes that we've been doing for International Women's Day. Some of the conversations we've had so far, we were talking about taking on taboos with Emma Barnett. We've covered gender portrayal in the media with Ella Dolphin, who's the CEO of the Stylist Group. We've covered life at the top, so the reality of being a female CEO. And that was when Sarah spoke to um, Dame Zilla Snowball and lots of other people on that episode two and we've also talked about creating a gender balanced workplace um, and that's when Sarah and I spoke to Sue and Catherine um, authors of The Glass Wall and also I spoke to Anne Franca who is the CEO of the Chartered Management Institute so if you haven't listened to those there's quite a lot to catch up on but in this episode we're going to be talking about how we engage men in gender equality and we've got two different people both men that we spoke to in the episode first up there's a conversation with myself and Josh Graf Josh is the UK country manager for LinkedIn and he's also the VP of EMEA and LATAM for LinkedIn and I talked to him about some of the initiatives that LinkedIn have got in place and also Josh's position because he's a real advocate for women in the workplace internally and externally and in that conversation I was so struck by his insightfulness his willingness to share some of the things that LinkedIn are doing also some great research that he references as well from LinkedIn and we'll put all of those on the website at amazingif.com and also we'll put the links on our bio on Instagram if you want to get to any of those and then after Josh Sarah speaks to a friend of Amazing If Daniele Fiandaka. Uh, Daniele is the founder of an organization called Utopia uh, of a number of networks he's a brilliant uh, person for curating people together but he's also the founder of something called Toka Man which is an initiative to get men involved in the diversity discussion and make sure they don't feel like they're on the sidelines and make sure they can be a real part of that conversation. And Dan Daly talks about the importance of belonging, diversity and inclusion as three separate things in his conversation with Sarah. So we'll get started now and on to the conversation with myself and Josh Graf. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Josh Graf. Hello, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for the invite. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for being on it. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Josh is the UK country manager for LinkedIn and also the VP for LinkedIn for EMEA and LATAM. It's quite a long job title. Is, it, is it growing? A little too you? long. A little too long. <laughs> I used to have a long job title. Um, 
Global Head of Customer Experience and Thought Leadership, and it, it wrapped on my business card. It's <laughs> a little embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, isn't it? That's when you know that there's some political reason internally why you have to have all of those additions exactly. to the job title. And as well as doing an amazing job for LinkedIn, Josh is also a vocal ally for women at work. And I just wanted to start this conversation off with a quote that I read that I was stalking Josh a little bit beforehand. And there's a piece on um, Huffington Post that you've been involved in. And it said, I've always believed that progress can be accelerated with the support of vocal allies and that men like myself can have a positive role to play in the journey towards gender equality. And I just thought it was just such a really nice, clear statement of you being a vocal ally for women at work. So maybe we can dig into a few questions. In terms of your support as a leader for women at work and that being something that you have taken, taken on internally and externally in some of the things that I've seen, why does it feel like an important thing for you to do as an individual and as a leader? I think there's a great philosopher and economist called Fred Kaufman who said a leader's role is to set the standard, to live the standard and to hold others accountable to that standard. And I've always felt that if you are leading any group of people, it is absolutely critical that every single one of those individuals feels a sense of belonging and feels like they can bring their authentic self into work every day. And I know, you know I was a shy, socially awkward, sort of introverted kid who was struggling at the time with his sexuality. And for so many years, I didn't see people that looked and felt like me in the business world. And I think if you can't see it, you struggle to be it. And I think it's very much the same for both gender, sexuality, ethnicity, socioeconomic background. You need to have a diverse group of people in the workplace for it to be productive, for it to be successful. And we know now without a shadow of a doubt that diversity is a solution. It's good for business, productivity, mm. profitability. And I think that I want everyone else to feel to some degree like I do in the fact that I can come into work and feel very comfortable being myself at work on a daily basis. And has it felt like an easy thing for you to do in your career as a leader, like to come in and say, I want to make businesses successful and I want to create belonging. And that's just the, the doors have been open all the time for you to do that. The doors have always been open. I think it's been a significant education process for me. I was a little naive, frankly, to some of the challenges that women faced in their careers. I was fortunate when I was growing up that I had two parents who set up a business now 50 years ago. They worked together every day. Wow. Mum would, <laughs> exactly, good on them. My mum would uh, drop me at school earlier than the other kids because she had to get into work and she picked me up on the way home. And I was surrounded by my parents' friends who were successful in business, especially the women who were successful in business. So I didn't know there was any form of inequality at a pretty young age. It was only as I started going through school and then notably as I entered the workforce where I suddenly realised there was this societal inequality that was manifesting in so many different ways in the workplace. Mm. It's actually really interesting that you said that. I haven't really thought of the, you know, the statement that you said about you can't you can't be what you can't see and you talked about your mum there. My mum always went to work yeah. uh, and she always used to, I remember she used to come to my like school events or something and she'd be in a suit and she'd be one of the few mums that would be in the school hall in a suit. And I always used to feel really, really 
proud. I'm like, that's my mum. But that's what I saw. And so I, I wanted to sort of emulate that because that was my reality. And it sounds like you had, you know, your mum was a founder of a business and, and had some of that as well. So you never questioned it. I never questioned it for a minute. I mean, my parents work together. They run a children's clothing business. It's been going for 50 years. I experienced all the challenges, the upsides and downsides of two people running a small to medium business in the UK. But they run it on equal footing with one another. Mm. So I never considered that there was an alternative universe where that may not happen. As I said, rather naively, mm. and that certainly changed as I entered business and I saw what is this systemic inequality in society. But it came as a surprise and then I had to go on a process of education for the next decade, learning what some of the challenges were. Mm. So let's talk about those. And from your perspective of what you've observed or, or learned or heard about or, or experienced, what are some of the barriers that you think you have seen for women in the workplace? I think one pretty clear is that there is a imbalance of men and women at senior levels. If you look at the executive teams, the boards of FTSE 100, FTSE 250 companies, and that then permeates through all of those organisations and frankly, most companies in the UK. I think women, from the conversations I've had and what I've observed, continue to be challenged with really the burden of family responsibilities and working responsibilities, their careers. And one of the challenges there is that childcare costs have increased so dramatically over the last decade. And in many instances, there's women I've spoken to who wanted a return to work after maternity leave, but it wasn't always financially viable for mm. them. At the same time, though, we have to recognise that men and women do show up in the workplace in a slightly different way, and we need to appreciate that and value that. So we just did a study of 140 million profiles on LinkedIn, and we noticed that women list 11% less skills than men on their LinkedIn profiles. They generally have a more truncated introduction in the about section. Mm. And in general, men will list their most senior roles, whereas women will list all of their roles since education. And we actually had to train our algorithm to eliminate bias as we match individuals with jobs or individuals with companies. That is amazing. That's so insightful. And I'm, I'm so pleased that that's, that's happening. I guess I'm pleased that the algorithm is reducing the bias, but then I also want to help women in the first place to make sure they're recognising their most impactful roles, they're calling out their skills and strengths, which then I guess you'd need to do the algorithm again, but it'd be a positive reason to redo it. Absolutely. And we struggle here and we had a lot of debate internally. Our view wasn't that women should be using LinkedIn differently or men should use it differently. We should accept the fact that men and women show up for work in a slightly different way on occasion and we have to value that and mm. as I said respect it but train the technology to eliminate any bias that may exist as a result of those differences in behaviours. And just to go back to something that you said there about the the, the, the burden falling on women, going, I'm doing this thing at the moment there, CEO mentoring, where I'm getting mentored every month by a different CEO because I've sort of taken on this job in Amazing If and I've never done it before yeah. and I don't always slash most of the time know what I'm doing. So I thought I'll learn from some people that do. And last week I was being mentored by somebody called Josh, who is the CEO, Josh Bayliss at Virgin. And he's a great guy. And, and we were just talking and, and he was sort of listening and advising and, and helping me in different ways. And one of the things that really helped me was that he displayed quite a lot of empathy to what I was going through. So he talked about his, his, his wife who was working. And he said, I know it's hard. I know it's hard for the mum. Like you, you're doing your job and you've got the children and that the children do want you. And 
he was talking about, you know, think about what support you need, but he didn't solve my problem because it is hard and that, that's they can't, no one's going to magically solve the hardness in my life. But actually to hear somebody in that position of responsibility and authority just show some empathy towards how difficult it is, I thought that actually when you talk about belonging, there are lots of initiatives that can be put in place, but actually having some just empathy and understanding for some of the challenges that women face that goes quite a long way, not to sort of ignore them and just say, yes, I know it's hard, but you can get through it. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the education process that I mentioned before. That's about reading up, looking at the research, looking at the statistics, but also just having very open conversations with women in the workplace, with friends, with family members to understand what some of the challenges are. I appreciate I come to this with a very different lens with a very different perspective and so that's been a learning journey for me. And is that a conversation that you have like in the leadership team where you will discuss gender diversity in the workplace I don't know the ratio of men and women at different levels earlier in the week actually as part of this podcast series I talked to Anne Franker and one of the things that she's proposes is proportional promotion just making sure that you keep actively promoting women through the different levels in the organisation so is it a conversation you have as a leadership team as well as it being something that you hold as important as a leader? Absolutely. It's a conversation that we have regularly as a leadership team, but also in the broader organisation. We have a number of employee resource groups. One of them is called Women at LinkedIn, and that has a three-pronged process. It's about inspiring, empowering and engaging them. And inspiring is about connecting them with motivational speakers and people who they can look up to, both men and women. Empowering is about developing uh, certain skills, be it commercial skills, Skills, confidence skills, whatever the challenges that they may face, and that differs across the business. And then the engaging part is ensuring that they have a network both internally and externally. And importantly, from a network perspective, it's about giving them mentors, but also about giving them sponsors. And for us, a mentor speaks to you and a sponsor talks about you. And in a situation where potentially there are more men taking senior decisions, those men need to be vocal advocates, ambassadors for uh, brilliant women in the company when it comes to promotions, salary adjustments, equity grants, relocation opportunities. And then to your point before, we have a process what we implemented a few years ago with our HR team, whereby every time we go through the review cycle, everybody submits, for example, in my business, everybody will submit their recommendations. That's, again, salary increases, equity grants, promotions. And the HR team then do a thorough analysis to cut that by gender and by level mm -hmm. to ensure that we are... Uh, treating everybody equally and then importantly they also flag the people who are out on parental leave which in most instances is maternity leave but sometimes dad's going out as well and I was struck over the last couple of years by the conversations I've had calling people on maternity leave to let them know that they got a promotion or to get a salary rise and I was really struck by the fact that of course, as everybody is, one's appreciative when you get any form of uh, recognition, but they were surprised that this happened. Mm. And I really dug into those conversations with them and as well as people at work. And I didn't realise that, frankly, again, naivety, but I've been working at LinkedIn now for about nine or 10 years. And I didn't realise that in other companies, this doesn't regularly happen. And now it's just embedded as part of our process. That's amazing. And just talking from kind of personal experience, I think when you are off on maternity leave, 
it's a time where you really question your value to the organization because I think you assume that a lot of your value is in your presence in the business. Um, when I was, it would have been when I was at Virgin and I was off on maternity leave with my first child, Henry, and I'd won part scholarship of uh, funding for an MBA. I would need to have approached Virgin to support me with some other, some other funding for it. And I remember really doubting whether that was something that was appropriate to do because what was going through my mind was, oh, but I'm not adding any value. Why would they want to have this conversation with me when I'm off? And something had gone on in my mind where the confident person I'd been in the office became less confident at home. And I, in the office, I could really see my value and I could see my impact. But at home, I was like, oh, I'm not that person now and they don't want to in invest in me. Um, and I think, yeah, some support for people in that bridging period on paternity, maternity leave so that they do know that they're valuable and that they are transitioned back really effectively to work can really help some of the doubt that I think creeps creeps in for people at that stage. Absolutely. We actually developed a programme that we trialled successfully in Dublin and we'll bring to the UK over the next six months called Return In, which is specifically focused on people who have been out of the workplace for north of 12 months, but often they've been out for three, four, five years, both men and women. And during the application process for a role at LinkedIn, they can flag that they've been out for a certain period of time. And therefore, we adjust the types of questions that we'll ask them in the interview oh, process. Wow. And when they do secure a role here, the onboarding process looks slightly different. And it could be about upskilling them on new digital skills that have evolved over the last three to five years. And it was, as I said, something that uh, we trialed was really successful. I think it was about 60% women, 40% men. We were actually surprised at the number of men who had been out of the workforce for an extended period of time, and something that we'll hopefully bring to the UK very soon. I can imagine in that those questions changing would make people feel so much more confident and not that they have to sort of justify what they don't know or what they haven't learned in the past 12 months, but they can focus on all of the value that they can add. Could we just return to the topic of sponsorship? Because I think that's a really, really important thing. And one of the things that amazing if we talk about is that mentors are really valuable and we talk about how people build mentoring relationships. And one of the things that we talk about is that sponsorship's brilliant, but you can't really ask for it. You sort of have to earn it because I can't say, oh, Josh, will you just go and sponsor me to, I don't know, your colleagues in, in LinkedIn. But when you talked about it there, it actually sounded a bit, it's, earning is active, but I just wondered if there's anything that you're doing to proactively enable sponsorship to support women that somebody that doesn't work in LinkedIn can, can go and do and take away. We have a programme called WIN, which is for our high potential, high performing female talent. And it's a global programme. And as part of that programme, uh, one signs up yourself. So you submit your application process and there's a certain number of people who can go through it every six months. And as part of that process, you get allocated both a mentor and a sponsor. Mm -hmm. And so for those individuals, they don't have to go and request a sponsorship relationship. But I would say if you have people that you really enjoy working with in your organization, go and ask them, go chat to them, mm -hmm. let them understand what your strengths are, what your capabilities are. And to the degree you're comfortable doing so like ask them to be your sponsor uh, let them know that you are looking for somebody to advocate on your behalf and I appreciate that in some cases feels like a really awkward mm, almost arrogant so, yeah but there's nothing you can really lose out in this process like worst case scenario somebody says no to you but the idea that you can go and speak to people both either men or women and say look I've been in the business this is the success that I've had these are the projects that I've worked on this is what my ambition looks like these are the type of role that I would love to have in a couple of years time and I'm looking for somebody to advocate for me internally and help me network internally and meet the people that I need to 
to meet in order to influence decisions when they're taken. Mm. And so the the sponsor is signing up for that to connect them to opportunities, to connect them to people that can help them with their aspirations and their ambitions. Absolutely. A sponsor's role at its core is to shout from the rooftops about your capability. Whenever those conversations are happening, to suggest your name for a promotion, a new project, a relocation opportunity, to advocate amongst all the influential people in the business who are making decisions on a day-to-day basis. When a job comes up that perhaps somebody wouldn't have considered you for previously, it's this person's role to say, oh, you know what? X would be a potentially brilliant candidate. Mm. Do you recognise people that sign up to be mentors or sponsors? Is their involvement in playing that role in addition to the day job is that recognized in their like reviews and performance absolutely and that's really important for us we unlike i would say a lot of sales organizations measure success in three ways for our sales organization results pretty self-explanatory based on your attainment based on your numbers but importantly under two other characteristics so leadership and leverage and leadership is the ability to inspire others towards a shared objective whilst upholding our culture and values and leverages the ability to scale whatever programs you're doing and under the bucket of leadership if you are a sponsor if you are a mentor if you are involved as a participant or leading one of our employee resource groups that is absolutely considered under that leadership bracket and it goes towards your review and likewise increases your ability to get promoted or to get a salary increase or to get an equity grant. It's, it's so interesting. I'm reading a book at the moment. I was reading it this weekend before my kids got up. I was like, I'm just going to get a bit of reading in before they distract me <laughs> with their Lego or whatever it is they want to do. It's about deliberately developmental organisations. So really embedding it deeply in the kind of ethos of the companies. We've got some really great examples of different companies that do that, actually. Yeah. But it was talking about the importance of these sorts of initiatives around, you know, they were talking about sort of learning, development and culture, but that having it based into the performance of leaders so their success is sort of dependent on the success of other people as well and not just the commercial results of the organization so you've mentioned so many different initiatives there was kind of about returning the women's networks how do you know that they're all working do they in order to set up a new initiative that is one that sort of brought to the table for discussion do you have to have some kind of metric of results is it a nice to do or do you measure the impact of them to the degree it's possible we try and measure the impact of everything that we do and one of the core ways that we do that is through looking at the progression of in this case women Mm -hmm. at LinkedIn over the years and we know that over the last four years at director level plus there's been an increase of 40 percent which is amazing we've still got a long way to go yeah but Uh, it is we've We've definitely been making progress and although we started out on gender, there's lots of other areas where we also need to focus specifically around race. And within my business across the EMEA advertising marketing solutions business, it started about four and a half, five years ago. And I got a load of data from our talent analytics team, which showed that we had a disproportionate number of men at senior roles. And we made it very clear at that time that our ambition was to get to 50-50 at every level of seniority, but that would take us a few years to get there so as not to disadvantage the men in the organization Mm -hmm. and we were transparent with the whole of the team a few hundred people at the time about where we were today and where we wanted to get to and we told them we would give them constant updates throughout that process and there were a couple of steps that we committed to taking so one was pretty simple no all-male shortlists yeah second was no all-male panels we realized based on the data that we had that there were women coming into the business who would meet five men and 
in many instances that meant that we were asking women to more frequently participate in interview panels but we gave them the context as to why mm -hmm. and the fact that this was about reflecting the company we wanted to be versus the company that we were potentially were at the time mm -hmm. we set expectations with finance that we may be slower to hire and therefore our numbers could be impacted on the year and they were really supportive which was wonderful it so happens that we hired at a faster clip than we ever had done in our history and we were just constantly transparent and it wasn't easy but it took us about three and a half four years and we got to 50 50 at every level of seniority but every year you know the numbers pivot one way or another mm. and from a UK perspective, we've still definitely got work to do. But from a gender perspective, we managed to get there on our advertising business. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that our advertising business is just one of many businesses mm. that we have at LinkedIn. So there are other business lines where we've still got some progress to make. And so in terms of that work to be done then, what is still on your mind and a, a, a topical conversation for you in terms of women at work and gender diversity at LinkedIn? I'd say job descriptions is where we've made some progress, but we need to do some more. We just did some research on this, actually, and we realised that over 25% of women are put off applying for a role if the word demanding is used in the job description. Mm. Over 50% would be put off if a working environment culture was described as aggressive. Mm. And there are only 40% of people in the UK who consider gender when writing their job specs. So we've got some work to do there, but we also believe that through you know, 650 plus million members and hundreds of thousands of companies using our recruitment tools around the world, we have a job to do advocating for change within job descriptions. There's mm. still 50,000 job descriptions on LinkedIn that use the word aggressive. Mm -hmm. So that is a path that we need to pursue internally, but also externally amongst the clients with whom we work. I actually saw that it was something that I um, was championing a little bit at Microsoft because I, I kind of saw the research, the words like, I don't know, macho, competitive, ninja, these kind of words that turn women off when they're applying for roles. And one of my thoughts was that in the world of work that we're in, often your recruitment is one of many things that you're doing. And so it often feels like it's, it's on the to-do list. And I think job descriptions can be written quite quickly, is my experience, often by the hiring managers, sometimes cut and pasting from job descriptions that have been written before. And that is the reality of how a lot of them are done. And then they get posted. And I think there needs to be some kind of check, either a human check, or it needs to be run through some kind of tool. And I know there are tools available that will scan for that slightly biased language and suggest alternatives because I don't think it is people intentionally going, I'm going to put all this gender-specific language into a job description to put women off. I think it's just some sort of bias that's sort of maybe implicit, some habits and some time pressures that as a result create these job descriptions and it just needs a little bit more support in lots of organisations I've worked in. And I've probably done it myself as a manager, to be honest, without being aware of it. Absolutely. And to your point, I don't believe, at least in the majority of the circumstances, I don't believe there's malintent, mm -hmm. uh, but there is inherent unconscious bias. And I appreciate there's different views on unconscious bias training, something that we've done with all the team in the UK. But when we look at the external stats, only 50% of the workforce in the UK have been trained on unconscious bias. And it was an eye-opening exercise for a lot of us. And this is where language came up. Mm. And we recently produce a report called Language Matters, talking about some of the analysis that we've done, what words resonate, which words don't. Yeah. 
what I'm going to do when the podcast is live on amazingif.com is I'm going to link to all of the research that I can find that Josh has mentioned on unconscious bias and the other pieces that we've talked about so that you can find it because I think A, it will help you to get and get deeper into some of the things that Josh has talked about, but it might also be very useful for you to share within your organisation to, I think, just have a discussion about some of these things. Some people might really want to, you know, hold it up and wave it and say this needs to change, but I think at the very least say, were you aware of this? Did you know this is going on in job descriptions? I think if we can start a conversation really openly and transparently share where we're at in organisations, I think it can start to create the environment for collaborative change to happen. Absolutely. And we've got some amazing stats on things like application rates. So we discovered that women in the UK apply for 5% less jobs than men. Globally, it's about 20% less jobs than men, but in the UK, 5%. And Interestingly, recruiters are more likely to open a man's profile than a woman's profile. But when they open a woman's profile, they realize that they are equally as qualified and will reach out to them in equal numbers. Mm. And what we've seen, which is a change that's taken place over the last two years, is at a senior level, women are 10% more likely now to secure those roles than they were several years ago. One of the challenges, though, is that women will ask for a referral 22% less of the time. Uh And there is amazing power in asking for a referral from somebody you know who works in a company. In fact, sometimes you can be up to nine times more likely to secure the job. And so I would encourage everybody, both men and women, if you know somebody in a company that can refer you, go ahead, ask for that referral. Mm. It can be amazingly powerful. I think that asking for sponsorship, asking for referral, being confident in your ability and maybe you're right to do that and the, the what's the worst that can happen worst case somebody says no yeah and, and best case you kind of get support access to new opportunities you tap on some doors that perhaps men have been tapping on for quite a long time as well um, Josh thank you so much for your time and sharing all of your wisdom and insights I think that it's been a hugely practical conversation as well as a really interesting one thank you thank you very much Hope you enjoyed that. As I said, all the links are going to be on amazingif.com and you can also find them on Instagram if you want to go there and that'll help you to get to all of that research that Josh mentioned. Now we're going to go on to Sarah's conversation with Daniele. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next in our series of Squiggly Career Podcasts to celebrate, challenge and champion all things around kind of International Women's Day. And in this series, we are trying to bring you a range of different voices and perspectives to talk about gender equality, where we are today, what the challenges are and where we need to get to. And today's guest, I'm delighted to welcome Daniele Fiendarka, who is the co-founder of a company called Utopia, the founder of something called Token Man, which we'll talk about, one of Management Today's Agents of Change, and also the author of Creative Superpowers, that's a lot of stuff, Daniela. <laughs> it is a lot of stuff. <laughs> that, that's a long list of things that you do. So before we kind of dive into why we particularly asked uh, Daniele to join us today, let's just talk a little bit about why it's so important to have male perspective when we're talking about gender equality. And actually, I was uh, looking at the Women's Equality Party, and almost the first sentence on their website is, gender equality is not a woman's issue, kind of inverted comma, and it's not about a them versus us. And actually, I think probably we all recognise that, that this has to be something that we all care about, that we all work together to kind of make the change. But I do, I am very aware of the kind of risks of echo chambers, of often spending time with people who probably have similar values and similar points of view. And what's really interesting about the work that Daniele has done is actually really kind of trying to embrace some of the tough things, talking to men about what are some of the challenges, perhaps why people don't get involved, what some of the barriers are, and then actually the work that he has done with both kind of individuals and organisations around what can we do differently. So, Daniele, talk to me first about token man. Like, we hear token woman a lot, and certainly, particularly earlier in my career, I was in a lot of rooms where I would have been, I hope I wasn't the token woman, but you know now when you look back, you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I was. What is token man and kind of why I mean, did you set it up? Uh, it's probably worth just going back to the event that kind of inspired token man. So, about, I used to run something called Creative Social, another hat, but uh, <laughs> a, long, a long time ago when I used to work in advertising, and you know, our makeup of our group was actually more than representative of the industry. So the industry only has, it was, it was basically a collective of creative directors around the world. We had 25% women. And if you look at the stats, actually, female creative directors are shockingly only 12%. Mm, yeah. But we knew we wanted to do more. So I organised a dinner. Lord John and Bamback from She Says helped me organise that dinner. And I turned up this dinner. It wasn't, it wasn't like a surprise when I turned up and there were 12 women and me because I'd organised it. Yeah, so I yeah. Knew, I knew that so was you knew who was on the guest list. But I, didn't, but I didn't think about it. And I turned up to this dinner and something happened to me that had never happened to me in my career, which is I walked into the room and I lost my confidence. And people now today still don't believe that happened, but it really <laughs> did. It was like this magic hand came down and just pulled away this thing called confidence. And then as soon as we sat down and the conversation started happening, I found myself 
already not feeling part of the group. But as the conversations happened, I started feeling myself being pushed further and further away. And then I got up to speak. And again, remember, this was my event, of which I'm not a sponsor to do it. Uh, it was about recruiting people to create social. And, uh, you know, my best mate, Laura, cut me off, you know, cut me off talking. And all of a sudden, and I don't think, and I haven't really talked about it, but it was, you know, but I know it was, you know, it was quite significant simply because, you know, I spoke to people two years later because we never managed to recruit anyone. And they kind of went, we didn't really know that that's what you were trying to do. Okay. Yeah. And so all of the things that I had heard women tell me about how they felt in senior management teams in the boardroom and hadn't really believed I experienced. And, you know, we, we do joke that if you type in the word privilege into Google and look at Google images, you do get someone that looks like me. Um, <laughs> and I have a lot I have a lot of privileges, but, you know, definitely one of my privileges, it, it took until I was 39 to be in the out group at work. Um, and it just and it just horrified me and it started to make me think about my own behaviours and what impact I was maybe having on others. So, you know, a good example was, you know, going to Tuesday management meeting of which there were 10 men and two women and the two women didn't like football. And the minute I started to talk about football, I was pushing them away. And so what really came out of that, and the second thing that happened is, is they came on to gender equality and I think I said one thing and then said the wrong thing and then soon realised I need to shut up. And for me, I, as I started to really start to understand this and get a better appreciation, uh, and I had been at the other end of finger pointing as well in terms mm -hmm. of what are you doing and what happens when someone finger points is you tend to get defensive uh, and you defend your position as opposed to constructively talking forward. And so I, I, I told this story to Emma Perkins, who is now a head of agency at Lego, but was the creative director at Chell at the time, uh, who I knew was a feminist. So, you know, we had a conversation and I started talking through this stuff. And what I loved about Emma is when I said the wrong thing, she never judged me. You know, she, mm. she created this really lovely, um, she just got a lovely manner and she just asked me questions. And it was really comforting to hear that and see her tone. And so, you know, we talked about this and we talked about this issue and I'm a hacker, so I like to find ways to solve problems. And we just said, let's do something about it. And, you know, that something about it ended up being Token Man. So, and Token Man was really set up as a space as a way, space for men to talk and to get involved in gender equality. So we can inspire men to become change makers. And, you know, there's this quote, I think Chloe, who used to run the gender blog, said it, I first said it, and it really hit home, which was, no minority in history has ever affected change with the support of the majority. Yeah, and, I think that's really powerful. And everything I'd seen and everything I experienced wasn't engaging men. Yeah. And so from my perspective, it was, what? Well, how are we going to how are you going to create change if you're not engaging men? So really, Token Man for the last six years has been focused on specifically how to engage men. And so we've learned a lot over those six years and it has changed. Our strategy has changed significantly. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, Token Man is, you know, about driving gender equality. And do you think, I was listening to you talk there and describe how you felt in that meeting, because that was obviously a tipping point for you, and then you were self-aware enough to kind of go, oh, this feels different, and on perhaps for the first time I've got an appreciation of what it feels like to be on the outside. So do you think that's one of the biggest challenges, is that almost you've got to feel it and experience it to believe it? Otherwise, we don't want men to have that bad experience, to have to kind of go through what you went through to think, oh, yeah, it's time to do something about it. We kind of need to create the empathy 
but without kind of necessarily that scenario happening. Because for most men, it, it won't it won't happen. No, it won't happen. And I think that the truth is, I mean, hundred percent yes. I mean, you, you initially we tried to recreate. You know, Token Man initially started with trying to re- okay, recreate yeah. those situations and, and actually get CEOs to sit in that table in that environment. I know someone like Kevin Mathers at Google has actually done something like that on a regular right. basis, so put himself in the uncomfortable position. But I think you're 100% right in that, you know, if you look at the work we do as Utopia, we will seldom focus just on gender. Mm-hmm. So we will focus on the inclusion and diversity, and that will be just getting people to understand what it feels like to be in the outgroup. But people aren't changing still. So what? why aren't they changing? And a lot of the reason is they just don't know what they don't know. My favourite definition of inclusion sometimes is the opposite of exclusion because exclusion is what is creating the negative impact on outgroups, you know, people that are different to the underlying culture of that organisation. You know, and when it comes down to gender, you see, you do see it a lot. And so I try, wherever I can, I try and ungender it and right, actually okay. make it outgroups versus in-groups. I think any narrative that's man versus woman is just not a good thing, um, simply because, you know, unfortunately at the moment, men are still in that position of power. So if you start making it a battle... Yeah, you know, you, you start you, to get into, like, win-lose territory, I, I mean, and it's a bit like um, John Vincent, who is the founder of Leon, has written a really good book called Winning Not Fighting, and he talks about how um, so much of our language is about, like, power and winning yep. versus uh, losing or kind of like fighting battles. Yep. And how, when you talked about asking questions, I think that's potentially a really powerful thing to think about is uh, you said, you know, you got something a, a bit wrong or very wrong and actually somebody didn't judge you. Actually, Emma just asked you, almost like she, she just got interested, just asked you some really good questions. Do you see that that is a kind of common barrier? It's not necessarily that men or people kind of in the in-group don't want to be supportive or don't want to help but there is now, perhaps because these areas are talked about much more, which is obviously a good thing, has that also increased the fear of I could do something wrong, say something wrong? You know, and I've, I've actually seen examples even quite recently of people who I know are trying to do the right thing, getting it a little bit wrong, and it's very public. Yeah. And then very publicly are kind of made to feel, I'm sure, bad, and it must be yeah. quite a tough experience. So a lot of the work we do with senior management teams is creating that psychological safety. So allowing people to have the ability to say something and not be judged. Mm. And I think generally, you know, I'm on, I've been on a massive journey for the last six years and I still get things wrong. But I think in terms of the context where I am, I don't feel I ever get judged, to, to be honest. I mean, I actually remember Emma when I, we first launched, she said, you know, it's really interesting how just, you know, for me, it's those different perspectives. So Emma, when we first launched, she kind of went, are you sure you want to do this? And I went, why? She goes, because you're really, you know, what you're doing is really unusual and you're putting yourself out there. And, you know, my experience is you're going to be attacked for it. And I kind of went, yeah, I yeah, I want to do this. I'm passionate about it. But when we started going deeper, what he was worried about me attacked by was completely the opposite of who I was worried. <laughs> okay. I mean, the reality in this space is she was worried that men would attack me. And I'm like, I don't really care, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that, that was an issue. But what I was worried about is a straight white man speaking in this space. Yeah. yeah. But I think coming back to your point before is most of the work we're doing is win-wins. So really, you know, the first thing we do with most of our clients is we stop talking about diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. We talk about inclusion and diversity so that people start really appreciating that as more different people come in, actually the business is able to really take the benefit from that. 
And I'm really interested in that links um, really well to we talk about now how workplaces are getting ever more personalised. So careers are becoming much more personalised. There's not one view of success. It's not we're not all kind of aiming or striving for the same thing, nor should we. Or it's very much kind of up to us to define the kind of things that matter to us to make sure that we can bring as much of ourselves to work as we want to. And, you know, what we're looking for organisations to do is create an environment where that feels possible and realistic and, you know, dare I say, even normal. I do see how that presents a real challenge for organisations because you're essentially saying create an environment where everyone, you know, it's it's so inclusive and welcoming and everyone has this kind of sense of belonging that everyone from different backgrounds, different genders, different races, etc., can can come and thrive. And if you think about historically where we've kind of come from with work, that's quite, it is it is a significant change, I'm Massive guessing. Change. Massive change. So where do people start? What do you see in terms of what do people kind of do first or does that really vary? Well, the first thing is to, is to fill the knowledge gap. You know, we started our journey seven years ago when we started the Women's Network and we've only just realised now we've spent the last seven years training women to to be men. <laughs> and what we should have been doing is training the men to work with women to change the culture. But if you look at the future, you know, there are only two things that differentiate us from robots. One is emotional intelligence, the other is creativity. You know, from my experience, you know, women tend to have more emotional intelligence than men. But yet, you know, we'll talk about the importance of emotional intelligence, yet we'll judge people if they then cry at work or mm-hmm. if they get emotional. How does that work? How can we talk about emotional intelligence being important and then and then shy away from actually have anyone having any emotions at work? So the system isn't fit for purpose. And so a lot of the work we're doing is actually saying, okay, how do we take the existing system and change it in a way that everyone can thrive? And if you're listening now, so I'm sure we will have people listening thinking, I am in an environment where it's not progressive. It's not as progressive as I'd like it to be. Perhaps I feel like I'm on the outside, not on the inside. And I think we all recognise that lots of the change that's needed is is quite systemic, is quite yeah, structural. Um, and that often has to come from, from the top. But if you are sitting listening and thinking, well, what could I do to uh, start to make a difference or to kind of help my organisation... At an individual level, what kind of things have you spotted that people have started to do, actions that people can take if you're thinking, I just don't feel like we are doing the right things in my organisation? Well, I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It should be started from the senior level. So it's worth saying that, you know, when we come talk about strategies, you know, we always tend to go into the senior management first and, and get them and fill that gap. So... Yeah, I think what people can do in organisations is really understand what, what they can do to change within their team. So I think it's individual behaviours, so be the change that you want to see. And then beyond that, look into your team and say, OK, what can we start doing as a team? But also just finding out who the key influencers are who can then create that change. So I think being extremely curious and understanding what is available out there. And if you look at, you know, I know we've mentioned it briefly, but if you look at the Creative Superpowers book, you know, I did the hacking section. So... You know, we believe there are four key superpowers to thrive in the future. So uh, maker, hacker, teacher and thief. And I know you've spoken, Scott, on on the teacher side. But, you know, hacking is about understanding that we do have these, we, we operate within these very complex networks and these very complex systems. And so you can't just make one small change. You have to make lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of small changes. You know, in India, it's called Jugad. In Brazil, it's called Jeitinho. You know, there are other <laughs> there are other ways of just doing it, but it's just what we will tend to do is we will go in and we will inspire the teams within businesses to become hackers. So firstly, educate them 
so they start to understand how behaviours within that team can be very exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Simple things like having a meeting at six o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Been you know, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just you know, if you if you're not a parent, you just don't appreciate how exclusive that is. I don't think I appreciated is. it. Yeah, yeah. I, do you know what? I've I, it's really interesting. I, I used to run a group of volunteers where we'd kind of put on these big events for charity, and none of us had got kids. And then actually, one of the girls in the group kind of uh, had had her first child a bit before everybody else, and so it didn't really ever say anything to me. And then I had my little boy, and suddenly realised the whole way that was set up basically meant it was almost impossible for a parent to be part of that group. Yeah. Yeah. Now that was completely, obviously, unintentional, yeah. and uncom- really unconscious. And that whole point of I hadn't had the experience, I hadn't kind of got the empathy, and also I don't think my friend felt like she could tell me because she was thinking well we sort of already do it in this way so then that individual has to either drop out and her contribution is incredibly valuable so then you 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 lose someone from that and you become very kind of similar you've got a lot of similar people in the room or she's having to go to ridiculous lengths to then try and still kind of be part of that and then it really doesn't work and it becomes really kind of frustrating and so I think that your point there about going help people to understand if something isn't working for you and it makes you feel like you're kind of left out, you have got to try and find a way of positively, if you can be kind of brave enough to tell people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's like the first time somebody said to me, um, oh, Sarah, Sarah can't make that meeting because she has childcare issues. And that phrase, I was like, when you say childcare issues, as in, do you mean I have, I have a son that I have to go and pick up from nursery? It's not an issue. It's, right. just, it's just you basically described a big part of my life as an, as an issue. You could be like, well, you're really overreacting to that. It's just the kind of language point. But I think those things do end up making a real difference in terms of how you feel. So for me, like when I was coming back to work after maternity leave, and that's a moment where, you know, you've got perhaps a bit lower confidence and you're trying to find your way of rebalancing all your new things in your life together. For somebody to say oh, childcare issues. And again, I think they probably have really positive intent because they're trying to work around me, to be clear, but it made me feel really bad. I then felt out of the club. I felt like, oh, now that this thing has happened in my life, I can't work in the way that I did in the past. And now I feel a bit excluded. And I think it was, it's really interesting. I think, like you say, the point about feeling excluded can come from gender, it can come from race, but it can also come from something like having caring responsibilities, you know, having kids, Looking at you know not not having kids, I think you know I've I've read some really interesting things this year around people feeling excluded because they're going, well I would quite like to leave on time as well. It's just just because I don't have kids doesn't mean that well, I can't go do that. There's a lot of people who feel they have to take the burden. Yes, and that's not yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. unfair either. But you know if you look at the hacks, one of the first ever hacks we did was putting school holidays in everyone's diaries. Yeah, we do. Do you know what we do that now for Amazing If? Yeah. Because so neither Helen nor I's kids are old enough to be having half term and stuff. But what we found was we had started to do some things and we were thinking, oh, why does that not work for people? And we were like, oh, it's because it's half term. Yeah. Or it's because we've kind of hit a moment in time that's really difficult for people who've got kids and we don't want to kind of exclude those people. Totally. So just in both of our calendars, we have all the school holidays, so just we'll, as a reminder. So we'll never do events during school holidays. Yeah, no, we don't know. If a client is wanting to do a training session and it's in school holidays, we will say to them, are you sure this won't mm. exclude anyone? So just making sure they're reminded. Yeah. Uh, I think my favourite hack again, came up one of the first hacking sessions we did, which was, you know, we just, we do an exercise sometimes where we get people to 10 seconds to write down their religious holidays that come to mind. Ah, so that yeah. came, that yeah, came out one of our hacks. So, it's so Co- how does that work now? Coco are European partners now, and they've done it now for two years. This will be the third year they do it. They allow anyone with any other kind of religious beliefs to work Easter Friday and bank holiday Monday yeah, and swap, swap it for their own religious holidays. So I over, love that as an I example. Know. I think that is such a small thing. 
that signals something really big. Totally. And is practically really useful. I, I, I think that does two things. It sort of says we care about everyone and we are, to back to that point about it's hard to be personalised, but that's a really personalised thing. You opt yes. in to essentially the thing that kind of works for you. And the reality is where you want to get to as a business is you want to get to, you, you know, over 12 months, you want to be able to show 50 things you've done. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to know with things like this where they are complicated and there's so many different interrelationships in terms of making progress. When you're thinking about your progress with Token Man and also the organisations you work with, how do they measure success? How do they think, like, kind of what does good look like? I mean, in the short term, because we focus in the short term inclusion, really we look at that engagement score. Okay, so specific- organisational yeah, engagement Yeah, organisational engagement, that question, do I feel I belong? Yeah. And actually breaking it very clearly down between diversity groups. So understanding how each group is feeling. And then when all of a sudden, if we start getting those positive groups and so the people... Um, so people of colour within the organisation, people that are LGBT feel as comfortable as someone that looks like me, all of a sudden at least you've got a workplace, you know that as you start driving that diversity into the business, mm-hmm. they're not going to completely spit out. And this is what we hear quite a lot, is people when they start focusing on diversity before the inclusion, is they will hire people that are diverse and then those people come into the organisation and they just won't fit. They won't enjoy it because they will feel excluded and so they fall out of the system. So firstly, we really focus on inclusion, understanding how inclusive it is, and then we start looking at diversity and, that's, and then we start looking at the measurements in terms of the mix of the staff at yeah. every level. And in the spirit of our conversation, I'm going to ask uh, a bit of a stupid question, but one that I think I, w- I would like to have a better answer to because I don't think inclusion or diversity are kind of everyday words. They're not words that I would use in kind of normal you know normal conversation and I don't think I would have a good answer to what's the difference between diversity and inclusion I think I'd have a go at kind of inclusion is more about belonging do I feel like I fit diversity how many different types of people we have but what's a kind of simple and straightforward way about thinking about how those two things are different because they are always put together now pretty much and are they put together for good reason well I mean we the, the one we use the kind of go-to is diversity is being asked to the party Inclusion is being asked to dance and, be- okay. and belonging is dancing like no one is watching. Okay, so let's say so diversity re- is being asked in the first place. Okay, so at the moment what we're saying is in organisations people just aren't getting in. Yeah, so that's yeah. so I get in and then when I get in I feel like I belong, enjoy it. Well, no, I've been asked to dance. So actually oh, okay. being asked to participate and give yeah. your views. So I'm not just standing it? in the corner. Yeah. I feel so like I'm kind of part of it. Contributing and belonging is like dancing like no one is watching. So... I'm, I can be my full self. Yeah. And I think that's the shift we need to make is understanding that getting people to change their culture is fundamental to the future of business. Uh, so how optimistic do you feel about the future? So you will have seen some things, I'm sure, that have given you cause for concern over the past six or seven years and some things that you start to feel positive about with some of the examples that you've given some of the organisations you work with. What, what does the next kind of five or six years hold, do you think? Well, I, think there's two, I think I'm going to talk with two hats on. First, at a utopia level, I would say that when we start to fill that ignorance gap, generally we do see people changing their behaviour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so people are open to change uh, and they do, the minute you start connecting them with understanding what exclusion looks like and the impact it has. So, you know, we talk a lot about microaggressions. Yeah. You know, I think it's Leah Setter from The Other Box, she describes it beautifully which is you know we know what it feels like to have a paper cut you know and for microaggression is like a paper cut 
And if you have one paper cut, it's just nothing. You know, it's just a small. If you get a thousand paper cut in a week, that's actually can actually kill you. You know, that it's is really... actually that's a brilliant description. Uh, uh, yeah. We did an episode, I think it's episode eighty-eight on microaggressions specifically, but we hadn't come across that. And I think for people who are interested, that is a really good way of thinking about how it feels if it's not something that's kind of happened to you before. And it's just so many, so many different things. And I'll give you an example of you know how it worked. And I think the first ever session that myself and Nadia did. And we stood up there and it was in front of a senior team. They knew we were talking about inclusion and diversity. And we stood up at the front of the stage. And Nadia, you know, it's one of those really embarrassing moments when you're wearing the same outfit as your photo. <laughs> so she just laughed about it. And then one of the clients said, well, Daniele needs to pay you more. Mm, and I, I was shocked. You know, we're co-founders of the business. And you know what? What the worst? I think actually the worst bit is Nad just didn't even notice it because mm. she's so used to it. She'd become <laughs> immune, you know, immune <laughs> yeah. to those kind of put downs. And I think you know microaggressions. There's lots of things, but you know that uh, that constant put down and what that feel like. Um, so I, I do think people, once you give them the information, they do start to change. I think on the token man level, you know, I've seen real positiveness. So I'm, I'm a member of a group, and people do find this quite funny. But the member of a group called the Mandem. Uh, it's uh, started by a, a wonderful human being called Francis Augusto, who I interviewed for International Men's Day on Soho Radio. And he invited me as a result of doing that. But, you know, I went to their first meeting and these young men, uh, and they're definitely young compared to me, you know, just their openness in which they're willing to talk about you know, how they're feeling uh, and this willingness you know, and as, as a group. And what Francis has done is put together a set of men who really want to aspire to a more positive tender type of masculinity and taking the bits of masculinity that are positive but then mixing them with some of the traditional what have been traditional feminine skills to understand how you can be a more rounded human being and I think that for me just seeing that happen again I know it's in pockets but just seeing that happening I think for me does show that people when they're given the opportunity in the space can change. I think that's reassuring because to me it sounds like actually from the work you've done over the past six years, you've really started to understand almost the nuances because I think it'd be really easy with these kind of challenges, it's very easy to get into kind of either blaming certain groups or to feel like you know, there's some very kind of straightforward things off. We just do X equals Y and that's what we need to do and it's clearly more complicated than that. But then I often do worry that that means that people kind of get this paralysis of then not doing anything or people who talk a good game and then don't even worse talk a good game and then don't actually take any action and I think listening to you talk today it's clear about there are some very kind of practical things that we can all do in our teams or if you're listening and you're kind of a leader and you can help really help to kind of influence and persuade people around information education committing to lots of small actions over a long period of time the more I listen to you talk, the more I feel this is not an initiative or a programme. This is more like how we do things around here, which yeah. is kind of very much kind of the cultural point. It is. And what's great and what I think we need more of is hearing those examples, is hearing from those heroes who've, who've kind of made those changes individually. And that's why I think the work you do is so powerful because you're, you're kind of facilitating and enabling that to happen, which is brilliant. If people do want to read more about hacking, generally that kind of approach and that style, and I've done some of your hacking sessions before, and I think if you are ever stuck, I think hacking is brilliant. If you're stuck on this is just too big or too complicated or too messy and hard, 
Uh, hacking is just a really good mindset, I think, to work your way through those problems. And in Creative Superpowers, you talk about that and you talk about how to do that. So people can read that, which is brilliant. Um, if people want to find out more about Token Man, where do they go? They go to tokenman.org or go to Twitter at tokenman or they just contact me. Best way to get in touch with you, Danielle, if someone listening wants LinkedIn, to get in touch. LinkedIn. LinkedIn, but please, please don't just press connect. Yeah. Please give me a reason why. I say you've listened to this and I will get back to you. I think for me, you know, we just need more people that can actually help activate. And as I said, at the moment, our focus is connecting to those senior leaders um, so that we can really accelerate change within business. Brilliant. And as always, we finish our podcasts with best pieces of career advice. So this can be your own advice. It can be advice other people have given you that has really stuck. But just some words of wisdom to leave our listeners with. So this is my favourite question ever because we actually published the book around it called The Best Piece of Advice Ever. Uh, and I've got a podcast on Soho Radio around it. And I think I'm going to say two, actually. I'm going to talk about... Jeez, yeah, I know. Jeez, I'll let you cheat. Sorry, but... I just I, and the two that were in our book, which was um, someone else's, and I can't remember whose it was, but it was just a really simple one, which is go out and meet people. Yeah, brilliant. You know, especially when we talk it's about being curious. And I, it? yeah, it's being curious. But I also, I also think with my kind of utopia hat on uh, and inclusion diversity, also go and meet people that you wouldn't normally meet. So don't yeah, go. Yeah, that's a brilliant build. So yeah. Don't, don't go to the standard industry event. Yes, maybe do one of those. But where can you go? I think my latest one is, uh, I think I'm going to commit to this year, going into rooms where I'm in the out group, nice. where I stand out. Yeah. So what does that look like? Uh, how can I go in there and how much, you know, and I think I can learn so much from that. I think the other one, which I think comes down to, you know, creating that psychological safety, but it's the one actually I always talk about. If someone asks me, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, was actually Dave Trott, you know, old uh, our, our old world. He wrote so a blog. Dave Trott's copywriter for people who might not. He is, and he wrote. He wrote. Yeah, I did really, really love his blog, and he's. Well, I read one of his blog posts, and it said, "It's better to be wrong and interesting than right and boring." And I think if we look, if we talk about education and ignorance, just being able to speak up and how you feel, I you never learn anything when you're right. Yeah, it's only when you say something that actually someone can challenge or just give a different perspective that actually you're going to start to learn. Yeah, and you're right. And those two things of psychological safety and the ability to do that definitely go together. They okay. do go together. So that's yeah. really interesting. So, Daniele, thank you so much for joining us for this special series of the Squiggly Careers podcast. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you. for listening to this episode we hope you found it really interesting really useful we think it is so important that this is an inclusive conversation yes it's about helping women to succeed at work but that is something that everybody should be involved in and we want men to be a really integral and important part of that conversation and not feel like they're excluded from it in any way um, and I think today we've we've heard from some really really inspirational men doing just that in the next episode, we're continuing with our theme for International Women's Day and really shining a spotlight on some really important themes and some brilliant women. Uh, and tomorrow we're going to be talking about female entrepreneurship and what it takes to be a female founder of a business. We're speaking to Sarah King and Claire Dunn, who are the founders of an organisation called We Are Radical. They support women who want to start and scale their businesses. And then I also go on to speak to Natalie Campbell, who is a social entrepreneur, a really inspirational woman who has just 
regularly and repeatedly started businesses and she has a lot um, to share with us about how to do that as well so hopefully that's one that you'll enjoy and we'll be back with you again soon thanks everybody hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.